All right. Assalamu alaikum. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Tripping over my words. Um, welcome, everybody, to an, another amazing Saturday session. I'm so excited for day four of Surah Noor. This has been such an incredible journey, and we have not even gotten halfway. We just started on the, um, the Surah about light. Um, so I'm so excited to see what, um, what the rest of today holds. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to start by just saying um, I found an interesting article in The Intercept um, that I thought I would share because we talk, uh, Sheikh has talked about the Abraham Accords um, here, and I didn't know a whole lot, but I found this article that I thought was really interesting um, in The Intercept, which, you know, I've, I've um, talked a lot about here. It's an independent um, news um, outlet that does really important reporting, and I think as far as independent journalism goes, I really believe that you know, Muslims especially should get behind financially supporting these outlets um, because they really dig deep um, in searching out the truth. Um, and this particular art article, it's called Intel Report Warned Abraham Accords Would Fuel Violence. And I was interested in it because, um, you know, as I mentioned often here, I watch a show called Breaking Points. And again, I think that that's another incredible source of truth-telling um, with Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty. Um, they really, and I've seen how they report on things that have to do with, you know, Palestine and Israel. And so, you know, that's always like the litmus test for, you know, okay, are these guys actually digging in and telling the truth? Um, but there was an exchange on the Breaking Point show between Ryan Grimm and Ken Klippenstein, um, both of The Intercept, and Ken Klippenstein wrote this article. And it was fascinating because he was talking about how he got this information. And so he actually um, was, he goes in and he tries to get information based on the Freedom of Information Act. Um, and he tries to get, you know, government documents that normally are, are not, you know, the government is, is you know, um, supposed to give it to you if you apply for it. But oftentimes you have to actually sue for it. So he actually has a lawyer that regularly goes with him and sues for these documents. And he was explaining that a lot of times these documents don't exactly show the government in a good light. And so they're not really, you know, excited to share even when journalists ask for that. So in this case, he had to sue for access to this particular report. And it's an intelligence report that goes back um, and says that Back when Trump was president and he was pushing this, you know, this Abraham Accords, which was, was Jared Kushner's baby. This is his um, big peace accord. I mean, it was presented as a peace accord, but it was effectively a business deal that was cut between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain um, that basically said, you know, let's, let's move forward on just forgetting about the Palestinians. Just ignore them as if they don't exist, and we want to improve financial relations between these countries. Um, and this was their way of solving the so-called peace agreement, which there was nothing, you know, about peace about it. Um, and so at that point, the Department of Homeland Security, which is a different department, I guess, than would normally do these kinds of things, did a report and discovered that this move would actually um, fuel violence, not just abroad, but um, they were concerned that it might also um, fuel violence here domestically. Um, and it could result um, in, you know, a, a lot of attacks either against Jews or basically, you know, by people who are unhappy about this idea of, um, you know, bridging the gap between, um, you know, Israel and Middle East partners um, and further um, isolating the Palestinians. So interestingly, then when Biden comes into power and now he's getting ready to go to the Middle East, what I, what I didn't understand is now he is actually taking this you know, so-called peace accord, and he, as they describe it, are they, he's doing much worse. Like, he's taking the Abraham Accords 
and putting it on steroids. And the way he's doing that is now he wants to add Saudi Arabia into this deal so that it becomes, you know, a joint business, you know, agreement between the Saudis, the UAE, Bahrain, and Israel. And again, you know, Sheikh has talked about a lot of these details um, in the um, khutbahs and, you know, in other places. But what the piece that I didn't realize is that this also, um, by the U.S. creating this partnership or being a party to it, part of what they're throwing in is that the UAE and Saudi can call upon the U.S. for their military might to, if, if they want. That's how he is sweetening the deal. And so if you play that out and you go, great, okay, so now the Saudis are even further emboldened not to care about anything because now they have the weight of the U.S. military behind them. All they need to do is call on them. And that definitely commits the U.S. to, you know, a lot of the things happening in the Middle East. So obviously for us as Muslims, this is a horrible thing to further empower the UAE and Saudis at the expense of Palestinian, you know, the Palestinians and everything else that could be connected to anything moral that we are concerned about. And all of this to also highlight the incredible khutbah yesterday, if you have not had a chance to watch it. Um, you know, it was already a really interesting, like, uh, paradigm that the, that the sheikh gave us about the idea of, you know, people here tend to think of themselves as decent people. Like, there's this sort of, um, you know, idea that is thrown at us and that we buy into when we're not thinking like well, we're good people we're decent people you know we're just minding our own business we're just living our lives and then he gives us the paradigm of okay but on the final day let's compare you know you thinking of yourself as a decent person versus let's bring the testimony of the miserable person the person who lived life miserable because they were not born into privilege and they were you know um, facing a lot of really difficult situations wherever they were living in the world and let's compare the testimony like you think you're a decent person well what did you do for the people that were in the miserable um, person's shoes and so that was a really interesting framework to give us and then he brought us into what is happening at at Hajj now and a continuation of what he talked about in last khutbah which is you know we all know now that um, if you want to go to Hajj you have to go through this agency that is run basically that the Saudis contracted and it and um, you know the, the people who are party to that are um, Hindu nationalists who are extremely Islamophobic um, there are Israelis that are connected to that and so obviously if you want to um, you know go to Hajj you have to do all of your bookings and all of your financial agreements through this agency and now it's been a very short time since they announced that that there are articles coming out about this fiasco. So, you know, you are told that it's $20,000, you pay your money, and then somehow you discover that your money is not recognized, that there was no payment taken, um, or that the package that you signed up for is no longer what you had signed up for. It's either a lot more expensive or it's no longer there. So basically, it's become a criminal racket. You know, so they get your information, they get your money, sometimes your life savings, and, and it's so expensive. And then, you, you know, you're completely vulnerable, that you, your money may be gone and you really have no recourse. So what's happening, in effect? You are spending $20,000 to line the pockets of the Saudis, Israelis, the Hindu nationalists, you know, the, the, this whole Islamophobic enterprise um, in order to go to Hajj. And so, you know, Sheikh made the very bold statement that with the circumstance as it is now, it is a sin to spend that money and line that po the pockets of these corrupt people. Um, it's a sin to spend that money to go to Hajj and to go to Umrah because that $20,000 
could actually go to Muslims around the world, the miserable people that we're talking about, people that are, you know, in dire straits, you know, and we look around, obviously, you know, whether they're the Uyghurs or they're, you know, in Somalia where there's an incredible famine taking place or Palestine, or I mean, you name it, any Muslim country, anything, any worthy cause that the rest of the world really does not care about, but we as Muslims care about, and that money that we spend going to Hajj should be spent on uplifting these disempowered, oppressed, miserable people, miserable Muslims around the world. And so this was an incredibly bold statement. Um, and, you know, I just wanted to highlight that in case you haven't had a chance to watch or you haven't heard. We're going to hopefully share some of that. But, you know, it's such an important, you know, um, important statement that I think a lot of us were, were you know, so... Um, I think, I mean, for me personally, I can say I, I felt very uplifted to hear that in the sense that, you know, things have to make sense. Like, you know, why are we spending so much money to support injustice when we're not helping people? And it, this is obviously a very difficult statement to make. But so it's something that, um, that we should reflect on and think about because if we're here to serve, you know, our fellow humanity and, you know, we take the lessons that we've been learning here in the Quran, I mean, this is a logical conclusion as to the state of our world. And so it's an important thing that, that we as Muslims really need to take seriously and reflect upon, especially in the context of learning about light upon light. So um, with that, I'm so, so excited again to um, jump into day four. And um, thank you for joining us. And um, inshallah, you know, may we, may we learn what we need to learn and internalize these lessons. And, uh, and don't rush, please. <laughs> take your time. Okay, thank you. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم سبحان الله العلي العظيم والحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على محمد النبي الأمين المرسل رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله الطيبين وعلى أصحابه المختارين وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري وأسل لي أمري وحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين Um, okay, so I'm told we stopped at 35. Um, there was um, uh, there was I think a um, a question uh, oh okay well let's um, so just uh, I, I don't want to do an uh, an overview because because I, I think we've already emphasized uh, but perhaps things that um, that um, to fill in gaps or things that I remembered later on and and the such. Um, uh, there was a question about Hawaiq ibn Abd al-Azi. Hawaiq ibn Abd al-Azi is the slave who 
someone I think wanted to know if that was a slave or if that was a slave owner. No, Huwaita ibn Abdelazi was a slave who wanted to a contract of Mukataba, a contract of uh, to buy his freedom from his owner. And when his owner refused, uh, he complained to the Prophet and um, and the Prophet's response, uh, and we have different reports whether it was the Prophet responded after the revelation of verse 32 uh, and, and said that the, the slave owner must in fact enter into a contract of Mokataba uh, or whether it was before the revelation. We, the, the reports are not consistent on whether it was after or before. Uh, some reports said that the, that the prophet didn't give a response uh, until the, the revelation of Surah Um The other thing, notice um, Notice that in verse 33, uh, So this expression, gives them from the money, the money belongs to God. And since the money belongs to God, support them from God's money. Um, because of this revelation, there is, or there was a, a a very lively uh, debate in early Islamic jurisprudence whether, how do I put this? A number of early authorities were of the opinion that if the slave is, I, we already talked about whether the slave owner can be compelled, can be forced to enter into a contract of Makataba. And the the debates about that, and especially the early authorities, there were in a considerable number of jurists that said that uh, a contract of Makataba is not voluntary, but uh, is not optional. But the other part of the debate that I did not, that I forgot to say anything about, is that um, whether if the slave is unable to buy his or her own freedom, whether because of this verse it becomes obligatory upon Bayt al-Mal, upon the treasury, to pay for the slave's freedom. And 
this again was a very revolutionary concept. I think it was an it, it was well ahead of its time. Um, and we do have many precedents in which uh, individuals would go, this is after the death of the Prophet would go to either Omar, um, Omar is, in most of the stories were either Omar or Ali. Um, and I'm trying to remember if any of them involved Abu Bakr or Uthman. I don't remember, uh, but definitely Omar and Ali. Uh, basically, that the the slave would complain to them that they need help to buy their own freedom, to pay off their owner, and then as these narratives would go, as either Omar or Ali would would order that the treasury would help uh, buy the slave's freedom. Now, of course. The, the import of this, the implication of this is extremely significant because if you, many jurists said that it would be left to the discretion of the ruler whether the treasury can afford to buy the freedom of how many slaves and at what price and under what circumstance. Some said that the treasury has, in the same way that the treasury has an obligation to help orphans, the treasury has an obligation to help the wayfarer, refugee, uh, that it's a, you know, zakat, that's the purpose of zakat money and that's the purpose of sadaqat. Um, they they made it a, a, a sort of a mandatory obligation of the states. Others, and especially by the time Abu Yusuf and his Kitab al-Kharaj come around, so, um, you know, in the second, early second century, there was clearly jurists were seeing these things as things that should be left to the discretion of uh, the ruler. But, with the assumption, I mean, the, the, the language was often that if the treasury could afford it, then that's an obligation upon the treasury. So morally, that, that's, what, that's what the rulers should do. Now, if you think about it, the reason that this is significant is that if you are saying that as long as the treasury can afford it, then it must be done. And if you are saying that this is at a high priority for the state, as much of a priority as freeing Muslim captives, so ransoming captives, uh, Muslims who are captured by the enemy, as much of a priority as supporting orphans, as much of a priority as uh, supporting uh, refugees, which as we know that the Quran emphasizes so, so often, that effectively what you've established is a norm 
that slaves must be freed, that the that they the that the state is responsible for purchasing their freedom. So compensating their owners and freeing them. That also implies that slavery as an institution is immoral wrong. That it's an undesirable situation. Um, I mean, subhanAllah, it's... Uh, uh, I say this because of, of the confusion that we find some have been created by some people in the, in the contemporary age. I mean, those who argued that slavery was never seen as morally acceptable in Islam this is the basis of their argument, is that you had in a considerable number of early authorities that while they could not get themselves to the, and this is because of just how ingrained the institution of slavery was, uh, to, you know, the idea of abolition of slavery without compensation, they, they, couldn't, they didn't imagine that. But most definitely, the drying up the sources of slavery and the notion that the purpose of charity, the purpose of money in, in the same way that it is to support the needy and so on, that it would also help the, buy the freedom of people, which means that buying the freedom of someone is, 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 is part of nur, is part of goodness itself. Um, incidentally, I mean, I, I've, I've, um, in one of my articles, I talked about how Qadi Abdul-Jabbar uh, speaks about um, slavery as immoral wrong. And uh, I don't know if any of you have followed this. So Jonathan Brown said, oh, I, I've went through Qadi Abdul-Jabbar's uh, Mughni and I didn't, I, I didn't find that. And uh, one of my students, Rami, um, found it, I mean, because it, it, it found one of the locations where Qadi Abdul-Jabbar signed, you know, and he brought it to me and said, I, you know, uh, I know I, I read it, but so the don't take everything at face value. Just, just, just because someone proclaims that the Islamic tradition is this way or that way, um, the Islamic tradition is is extreme. is far more complex than um, than any mis any attempt. To sum it up as one way or another way, you you always have orientations and trends and momentums within the tradition, and often these orientations and trends and momentums are competing because human beings 
while clearly reading the Quranic text, the, Quran, the Quranic says, katibuhum, you know, Allah affirmatively, and the language is quite affirmative. I mean, when you read in, in rather affirmative language, So as long as they have good moral character, this is a, an affirmative, a positive form. Do it. Now, furthermore, Normally, this language, affirmative, normative, positive language, if people were not reading it with any cultural baggage, if I'm just reading this and I have no cultural baggage whatsoever, I would understand this as an absolute command from God that if you have a slave, you must, Allah commands you, to enter into a contract allowing the slave to earn their freedom. And Allah commands you to, to in fact, incur an expense to help that slave enter by their freedom. Why don't we read, why did so many Muslim scholars didn't read this verse as an absolute affirmative obligation? Why did, it, why did they read it as an option or as still allowing slave owners to have a choice in the matter because of cultural baggage? So in... Notice, notice how, look at how culture works. Look, when we read the verses right before it, right? Right before it, that same grammatical form, from a gramma, grammar perspective, it's the same form. And we read, وَالْيَضْرِبْنَ بِخُمْرِهِنْ عَلَى جِيُوبِهِنْ Right, that we we read that positive normative command. How is that read culturally? By by the overwhelming majority of Muslims, is that it's a command for women to cover. No ifs, ands, or buts. Kalas, we're done. Women cover, we're done. But right, the next right, you just the next verse over. Same grammatical form. Says. Enter into a contract with your slaves. Give slaves from the money that God gave you. God's money, not that the money that God gave, but it's God's money, and. We read the first, we read that as mandatory, and we read as optional. Why? That's the influence of culture and psychology. 
it, you you take the same language. It's the same reason, although Allah talks about uh, the aura of women. You know, if you if you put the sum total of places where Allah possibly talks about woman's aura, two or three places. Depends on whether you consider Ayat al-Hijab that applies to the Prophet's wives, whether it has normative connotations beyond the Prophet's wives. If, if yes, then it's three places. If no, then it's two places. But how many places that Allah commands that you support the orphan, the needy, the, the refugee, yet when you come to the mainstream Muslim, their attitude when it comes to women's aura is that that's non-negotiable. But their attitude as to whether an orphan is entitled to financial support, that, well, that depends. Depends on discretion, depends on personal judgment, depends on the you know assessment of what why do people negotiate language this way it is because of embedded values that we bring to the text the grammar is the same but we bring embedded values to the text and while it is nearly impossible for human beings, I mean, the Khawarij were the ones who thought that it is possible to read the text without embedded values. You know, are they successful in doing it? Well, I don't know. But while it is, in my view, impossible to rid ourselves of embedded values, it is critical that we are analytically aware of them, that we interrogate these values, and we ask ourselves, is injecting the text, reading a normative command when it comes to women differently than when it comes to slaves? We read the same grammar differently. Is that fair? Is that part of what God wants? Is that consistent with the objectives of Sharia? Is that consistent with the divine purpose and cause? Is this consistent with the Surat al-Mustaqim? As long as we are honest in our discourse, then that's the pinnacle of what we can hope for. It is our honesty and our ability to be truthful, that is a foolproof defense against error. As long as you are honest and truthful and diligent, then you've discharged your obligations. You can't, people are incapable. I mean, there are always some exceptions where, you know, uh, uh, a, a truly genius, brilliant intellect that can think out of the box completely. 
But the vast majority of people, in, for the vast majority of time, people are very much context embedded. They, they're, they're, they, they work within what we call the epistemology, the system of knowledge that has deeply influenced their psyche. And it influences their engagement with the text. And that is precisely why, you know, you might find a scholar who will not at all be troubled um, by, or, you know, not say one word about um, what obligations are, are um, um, what obligations apply to women and so on, but yet come to the issue of slavery, for instance, and you find them approaching the Quranic text in a methodology that is inconsistent with the way that they approached other issues like women or the needy and so on. And it's not that they necessarily like slavery, but scholars are human beings and they have, they're motivated by, you know, sometimes they're motivated by the desire to be different. Sometimes they're motivated by the desire just to say, oh, you know, it's it, it, whatever value system we, you, the scholar thinks belongs to the West. Well, Islam doesn't subscribe to that value system. Whatever motivates being analytically aware is, I think, where al-hikmah lies. It's, it's not, it, it is being able to, to interrogate the interpretive process and to vet it out so that whatever interpretive moves you are making, you are making consciously and in full awareness. Um, okay, so th this is an important point because notice it comes right before Allah launches into Ayat al-Nur. So, you know, Allah comes and the point of decency that the lowering of the gaze, the whole issue of modesty, and then moves on to something that is even far more revolutionary for society at the time, you are not free to use the bodies of your slaves as you, as you wish. Slaves have a right to marry. You should make sure that your slaves are married. You should help your slaves financially to get married. And slaves have a right to freedom. And you have an obligation to help slaves financially to attain their freedom. And then you get Surah An-Nur or Ayat An-Nur. Can we say that the Quranic ayah on Mukatabat, uh, on Mukatabat, is it, can we say that it's a right to freedom? In my interpretive process, I absolutely think it is. Because the only reason it wasn't read as a right to freedom is because there were people at the time 
couldn't imagine that God is really saying what God is saying. When Allah says katubum, that that in, indeed that Allah was saying, you know, every slave has a right to buy their freedom, and every slave has a right to go to the treasury to demand help in in earning their freedom if they can't pay for it themselves. Um, even uh, someone like uh, uh, Omar bin Abdul Aziz, I mean, when you see that Omar Abdul Aziz was often taken as, taken as the prototype of how, what the ruler can do right, as opposed to what rulers did wrong. And it is significant that in his seerah, whether historically accurate or not, but the prototype of Omar bin Abdul Aziz is that he, one of his reforms is that he ordered the treasury to help any slaves that want to buy their freedom to indeed buy their freedom. And, you know, so when we see the construction of that moral ideal, then we can understand at least what people innately understood as good, even if they thought what was good was unrealizable, that unachievable in their time. Um, also, I, I, I don't want to move while uh, not sufficiently uh, or giving this its due. Um, notice, وَلَا تُكْرِهُ فَتَيَاتِكُمْ عَلَى الْبِغَاءِ إِنْ أَرَضْنَا تَحَصُّنَا لِتَبْتَغُوا عَرَضَ الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا So we said that this was about the, or at least reportedly, the six women who uh, were forced by the owners to um, prostitute themselves. But again, look at the language, right? The elements of the Quranic revelation, when you break down the, 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 the linguistic and normative elements, is la tukrihu, no, no coercion, you can't coerce. Fatayatikum ala al What is bigha? Bigha is prostituting oneself in order for bigot to exist must there be a monetary exchange and the answer is no anytime you force a person or anytime a person or not even forcibly but anytime a person engages in sex as a means of dealing with the other morally that's begot 
So, you know, if I, um, even if, if someone, you know, engages in sexual behavior to get a job, that's bira. If someone engages in sexual behavior to um, uh, gain fame, that's bira, even if it's no money. Uh, someone engages in sexual behavior to even avoid someone's anger. That's bira. Okay. In aradnata hasuna. In aradnata hasuna means if they want to live chastely, the language itself. On its face, if you read the language from a strict constructionist perspective, right, doesn't just apply to me either prostituting my slave for money or the other practice that was prohibited at the time uh, by Islam where you offer your slave as to provide sexual favors to friends. So you have guests that come, and a part of welcoming your guests is to provide a slave girl for the night. That was prohibited, right? But it clearly, by the, by the strict construction of the language itself, also applies to coercing your slave is for a slave owner to coerce their slave to have sex. Because in Aradnata Hassuna, I want I want to hassun, meaning what? I don't want to have sex outside of marriage. That's what the hassun is. Sex, I need marriage. So think let go of your cultural baggage and just focus on the language. And if a slave owner says, I'm going to have sex with you, whether you want it or not, well, that's coercion. And you, without marriage, you need to just please me because I own you, that's bigha. So clearly, on its face, the language of the Quran answered the questions. And so when you have these jurists that said um, slave owners cannot have sex with their slaves, which is, by the way, also the position of the Khawarij, because they were strict constructionists. They read the language without the influence or, or, or made it a point to read the language without the influence of cultural values. It is cultural values that come and say, well, yeah, okay, this language applies to prostituting slaves, but it doesn't apply to slave owners having sex with their slaves. It, that exception is due to a cultural value not due to what the actual language of the text says. Is this clear? Everyone follow it? 
For some, you know, for some reason, these are rather blatantly obvious points, but yet, you shockingly, you find so much confusion among modern Muslims. Um, and when you find those who claim to be, um, you know, strict constructionists that they, they 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 believe in blind obedience to the text without, uh, but yet they're incapable of reading a text like this, literally, and they immediately their mind. And, and this is exactly what happened with people like ISIS, for instance, is that, you know, they, they read a text that, like this and said, well, yeah, but it doesn't apply to, um, because in their mind, for, for whatever reason, the, 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 their historical assumptions, their cultural assumptions made them think that Ikra and, uh, 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 you know, made them think that what they, did in raping uh, uh, their captives and, and their, their uh, raping women in the places that they've, uh, that somehow this is not covered by the Quran and that somehow that's proper Islamic behavior. Okay. So, you notice that clearly th there is a project here. And if you sum up the project, it is a project of modesty and moral beauty. Moral beauty summed up in the upholding basic principles of decency and honor and dignity and privacy. Oh, I, one last thing before we get to, to, uh, to Nur itself. Notice just, this is to, um, what is revealed very close to Surat Al-Nur is Surat Al-Ahzab. Probably Surat Al-Ahzab was revealed right after Surat Al-Nur. Probably. We'll, we'll get to Surat Al-Ahzab. But this has to do with um, the, the issue of the khimar and the cover and so on. Um, because, uh, you know, a lot of people are, are incapable of... Um, reason discussions about these things. Uh, in Surah Al-Ahzab, there is, and again, I'm, I'm, you know, we will, inshallah, we'll get to Surah Al-Ahzab, but this is where um, Allah instructs, where Allah says, speaking to the Prophet says, قُلْ لِأَزْوَاجَكُ uh, and so on. That to speaking to to the women of the the uh, 
women folk of the Prophet and to believing women generally. And we'll get to to the the, the whole jilbab and and yudnin alayhin and yarafna falayuzain and so on. Inshallah, we'll get to that when we get to Surah Al-Hazab. But the reason I'm I'm just mentioning it now is the narrative in Surah Al-Ahzab. There are many reports that allow us to understand something about what was going on in this period. Because we have a number of reports in different versions, but all of them have the same basic import, that there were men in Medina, normally described as munafiqun, but basically they were impious men. They were not, you know, good... um, decent, nice men. Uh, some of them, sometimes these reports, you know, it, it will name a few. Um, anyway, well, well, you know, let's, um, but that, that, إِذَا مَرَّتْ عَلَيْهِمْ I mean, one of the one of the versions of the reports say, say that وَكَانَتْ سَيِّئَةِ الْهَيْئَةِ that if a woman passes and they, looking at her, think um, that she is showing too much. It, the reports don't tell us how much but she is showing too much of her body, that they would think annaha mazniya. Mazniya means that she is among the loose women of ill fame in Medina, meaning that she is probably either a prostitute or a prostituted slave girl. Because those who worked in that trade were, the the way that they advertised themselves is to wear things that make noise when they walk and to wear things, I mean, we, we either that show their bosoms or that are slit on the side to reveal the legs, uh, and so on. And as a result, then they would harass and proposition these women. And as the reports normally would say, that then they would harass these women but these reports normally go on to say that as a result, they used to harass believing women and often target slave girls but end up harassing free women. And that as a result, then Allah reveals uh, Ayat al-Jilbab, 
in Surat Al-Ahzab, uh, which which for now let's say that basically says whether you are free or slave it doesn't matter cover up in in a, in a certain way you need or is to make the jilbab the 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 um um What's, how do you translate your um, robe or, yeah to, to basically cover the legs but if you pause for a second and think of these men would confuse slave girls from free girls and would confuse women of ill repute was believing women because of the way they're dressed. That in itself tells you that even after Surah An-Nur, it is not like dogmatic history it is not that people donned a uniform and they all became overnight the bearers of a uniform. Because if they did, you wouldn't have the problem, the social problems with Surat Al-Ahzab. And you wouldn't have men that confuse between the believing women and women of ill repute. That, that means what? That some believing women, and we have no reason to, to accuse them in their, in their you know, we can't do what Surah Al-Nur tells us to, not to do. Just because of you know, the way they're dressed, we say we, we, we commit qasf because <laughs> then we've defeated the whole purpose of Surah Al-Nur. And in fact, Surah Al-Nur is coming and saying, you, know, you are not free to go around maligning and slandering people because you believe that their behavior is suspect, and in fact, that is spreading fahsha. And as we said, that's protection of people's privacy and protection of people's dignity. But there is so many indicators within that tradition and within the history after the early history of, of the Umayyad history and Abbasid history and so on, that um, that m modesty was not a simple matter of the, of the state ordering people to all be uniformed in a single matter that modesty was a a very context specific culturally embedded institution 
because if from Surah Al-Ahzab, we get a sense of the concerns that existed in Surah Al-Nur. Remember that Surah Al-Nur starts out with wanting to discourage, discourage zina and discourage slander and loose talk and from Surah Al-Ahzab and other reports that are not necessarily dated either or associated to Surah Al-Nur or Surah Al-Ahzab is that the nature, if you've ever um, uh, lived in an area that is uh, without electricity, without a police force, um, where uh, the streets are safe in certain periods, but unsafe in uh, certain times, but unsafe in other times, uh, where there is a very real issue of ha putting people in danger. So it is important to understand that part of the project of Surah Al-Nur was dignity, privacy, and the safety of the, 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 the person, the, 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 the safety of people's personal space in our modern language and people's safety. And this is a, a, a significant part of creating a Nurani society, a society of light. Because if people are unsafe in society, if people can be harassed, if people can be molested, if people's reputation can be tarnished, even just intuitively, we know that that's something that's not Nurani. But also, if you oppress people, if you lock up people, if you take away people's dignity, if you take away people's sense of pride and honor, um, that is also contrary to what is Nurani. And we know that, again, intuitively. There was someone who sent a question um, said, are you saying that it's haram for women to wear makeup? Listen, I mean, in the, in the tradition, we, we have many reports that women used to wear kuhl and other uh, and, uh, ways to, to overcome paleness or a pale look um, uh, and other methods of beautification that was practiced back then. I'm not saying the, the um, I'm when I remember I, I talked last halakha about being I, I used the, the, the colloquial expression dolled up. And what I mean by dolled up, it's the attitude of I am going to paint my face so that I can become a showpiece. That's what I'm talking about. There is makeup where, you know, you, you basically address, you know, you don't want to look pale. You, you want to look, um, 
presentable. And again, I, I think these are all culturally defined. But there's makeup that basically says, stare at my face. Uh, I want to bring attention to my face. And I think that's the problematic makeup. And, and I was commenting, especially in the context of social media, where I, I just find it incongruent and mind-blowing that someone who says they're wearing the hijab but then sits there and paint their face to say, look at me, I'm so gorgeous. So what's the point? I mean, then I'm just, I don't get it. Then if the hijab, the whole point of the hijab is to, to say, lower your gaze and don't stare at me. And so you wear the hijab and then you do everything to say, stare at me, and not just stare at me, but follow me and give me uh, likes because you're staring at me and you're admiring me. I mean, I mean listen, I'm not a woman, uh, and so I always feel awkward talking about this because it's the things that, you know, these are issues that really w women should talk about. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm overstepping my bounds. Um, but I have a right to pause these questions and if women can engage me and convince me that that makes sense because so far in all the engagements I've had it just doesn't make sense it just and it seems so contrary to the whole notion of modesty and ghadd al-basar. Um, I mean, even just following someone because you find them good looking is, is inconsistent with ghadd al-basar. Follow someone because you think they're intelligent, you think they're pious, you think they're gifted, you think they're uh, artistic, I, I don't know. But to follow someone because they look pretty, how is that Islamic? I, I, anyway. Okay, so let's go back then to Ayatul Nur. You will find between Sufi and non-Sufi tafsir, and if you add to this works like Imam Ghazali's Ihya'ul-Din, if you just look at what Razi's commentary on, you know, not even if you if you put aside the the complexity of someone like Shirazi's commentary on Ayatul Nur, you take someone who is less complex than Shirazi uh, Razi and his in his tafsir. Ayatul Nur, I think that Allah constructs it so that it can have numerous meanings. You know, whether, you know, the, the, the mishkat is the, 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 uh, 
the place for the the lamp um, is the human body. You know whether the 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 glass is the human intellect. Uh, what part of this metaphor is the human heart? Uh, whether it, it um, the oil stands for the the prophet. You know, numerous interpretations have been offered. And the power of a metaphor is that you can find that you can apply it to a number of constructs and you find that it can clarify and inform and educate and enlighten. And the more that a metaphor fits a, a wide range of constructs, the more the, that metaphor is apt and the more that metaphor is useful. And in very, in, as uh, Joe reminded me, I've given a number of khutbas about Ayatul Nur and if you follow these khutbas, you'll find that I myself, I've talked about Ayatul Nur within different meanings in different khutbas. But the construction that I am giving it in the context of this tafsir responds to a very specific element, and that is the role that this ayah is playing in sandwiched right in the middle of a discourse on laws. But we notice something about these laws. These are not laws that are regulatory. They are not laws that, for instance, that tells you when you enter into contracts, write the contracts, or when you enter into loans, take a loan, write the loan, Make sure that you, you write it and witness it. Um, sure, I mean, there is a moral implication, but the main purpose of these laws is to organize and create order in order to avoid conflict, in order to, the, the moral value is that we don't want conflict. But here, Ayatul Nur is sandwiched in the context of laws. All of these laws are the type of laws that are, are closely wedded to morality. The way that we treat the sanctity of the body and the way we regulate intimacy, whether intimacy can only exist within the bounds of wedlock or, or outside of wedlock, it, it's a moral issue. It, it is not a matter of cost-benefit analysis. It's an issue of moral, morality whether you can talk about whether you can talk about 
whether you can do qasf, whether you can malign people's reputation because they acted in a way that you think is inappropriate or because of even what they wear or because you saw them, you know, as often happens in, in traditional societies, you know, a woman could be walking in the street and she is, she's harassed by uh, uh, a bunch of losers and the next thing she knows is that she gets a bad reputation. Because she was victimized by people who actually harassed her and not subject to a cost-benefit analysis, the, these laws come and say, you cannot, you may not tarnish someone's reputation um, because you think that they are acting inappropriately or acted inappropriately or is dressed in a certain way and so on. Again, beyond cost-benefit analysis, it comes and says people have a right to buy their freedom. Beyond cost-benefit analysis, it comes and says people have a right to privacy. You cannot enter homes without permission. And if you're told, go away, you have no right to be offended. It doesn't even enter into, well, you know, are, are you renting this property? It's, it's, it gives you a flat rule. It's not your home. You cannot enter. And if no one is there, you cannot enter. And if you're told to go away, you must go away. Issues that relate to dignity, honor, and privacy. What we, in a word, in Arabic, would say issues relating to adab. All these laws are the type of laws that are closely connected to morality. And they're also the type of laws that are, if human beings follow the logic of cost-benefit analysis, they can easily lose sight of why should we have these laws. So, listen. If you take the language at its face value, right, then if you give way to practical logic, to practical reasoning, you would say, well, you know, if someone acts in a suspicious way, then they forego their right to privacy or they forego their right not to be slandered. But this revelation comes and says no exceptions. You know for going, you either bring four witnesses or you're in trouble. When it comes to seeking permission, the rule against the justice, against spying, 
is a firm one. We all know the story where Omar ibn Khattab reportedly, you know, sees people drinking alcohol and says, I'm going to punish you. And they say, well, no, you can't because the Quran commanded you not to spy and you, you saw us without our permission. We were drinking in our home and you effectively spied on us so you forfeited the evidence against us right the reason when the american constitution or you know had the 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 rule against you know against unlawful searches and seizures the reason it was considered such a profound point of enlightenment is precisely because it was adopted regardless of the logic of cost and benefit. It was adopted as a moral ideal. Regardless of whether this, um, you know, is pragmatically good or not, there are certain principles and ideals that transcend pragmatism and when you ponder these laws including the laws of modesty or you know the 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 laws of um not using the bodies of whether people you own or people that you, 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 you in other words, to, to prohibit the idea that you can commercialize the bodies of human beings in order to uh, benefit financially or otherwise. Again, it's a, it's a moral point. Then in that context, Allah reveals Ayatul Nur. And so we have a right to ask what, what Allah is talking about are points of moral beauty. Things that in society would create, would allow people to feel that they have um, a sacred space, a sanctified space, a protected space, and that that space cannot be violated because someone, for instance, thinks, well, you know, the greater good, if I violate the sanctity of your home, maybe I'm, you know, violating your privacy, but society uh, 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 overall benefits. Or maybe I am forcing you, you know, um, uh, I'll give you a real life example. In the, um, unfortunately, sadly, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and maybe still going on, Allah Adam, you know, in these dictatorial countries, you never know. Uh, in Egypt, the intelligence force, al-Mukhabarat, 
had a program where they went to very famous TV stars, movie stars, singers and movie stars, people like Saad Hosni and so on. And they trapped them and forced them to prostitute themselves for the sake of the country. What they did is, is that they would, they knew that these movie stars were very popular, were very hot. And so they would force, they, they would have a diplomat from, have diplomats visiting Egypt or whatever. And they would have these movie stars go have sex with these diplomats and they would film them and then use the film to extort these diplomats from other countries. And of course, the logic was, well, we're doing it for, you know, for the good of the country. And so what if we force a few women to prostitute themselves if the country as a whole will benefit? And of course, no one was punished for doing that. But what was even the, the logic of the military, the reason no one was really punished for doing this, and, and it might even be still going on today, Allahu Alam, uh, because you know the dictatorial countries you only know when one dictator wants to, uh, you know, um, wants to take down the reputation or the legacy of their pre the previous dictator. So when Anwar Sadat basically came to power, he revealed what Abdel Nasser did. Uh, when Mubarak took power, he allowed things to leak out about what Sadat did. So and so on. But that logic. The thing that was that was stunning is that when you find, um, remember, Egypt is a country that has Azhar and has plenty of shiuch. And when you engage the shiuch, they never say it's halal. Obviously not. But they don't. They're not unequivocally outraged. They don't say, oh, you know, absolutely a, a, a ruler that employs Safwat al-Sharif, who was the, the, you know, was one of the people who spearheaded this program, is morally bankrupt and, and entirely unacceptable. And sort of the logic that they have is, well, A, you know, these movie stars are not exactly honorable women. B, well, you know, it's for the good of the country and, you know, these are the rulers who are, and we, you know, do it. This type of pragmatic logic, do you see how easily it can be the door to darkness? Pragmatism, pragmatism, the same pragmatism that allows Saudis and Emiratis and Egyptians to sit there and say, let the Palestinians die. You know, uh, you know, and the, uh, just okay. You know, should we all suffer or just let or sacrifice the Palestinians? You know, so they're miserable, but at least we're not. Pragmatism can be the door to untold levels of darkness. Part of 
the whole logic of Allah bringing us from darkness to light is Allah is telling us there are certain things, people, that are beyond the logic of pragmatism. Among those things is your dignity, respecting one another, honoring one another, which includes and not exploiting one another, not prostituting one another, and which includes respecting your privacy. We are, the irony is that when Allah comes, and, and as we'll see in a second, Allah says that, you know, you must seek permission before entering upon one another. So many scholars read this as optional, as Allah is saying, well, if it's convenient, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a second, but I think an Allah alam exactly the opposite. These moral laws are uncompromising. They are beyond convenience and beyond pragmatic uh, factoring. And this is precisely when Allah comes and says, understand that Allah is light and You know, whether, and again, so many interpretations about the shajara, the, the shajara that the, that the, the olive tree, um, uh, you know, is it the, the Abrahamic uh, religions? Is it the Sunnah of the Prophet? Is it, it the, the point is, is that the nature of Allah's light is self-illuminating. It is luminous by and of itself. It is a, it is a, a product of divinity, but it is not divinity. The, the light it is is not God, God's self, but it is methal lillah. It is a an example of divinity, Allah's self is beyond our comprehension. But Allah's light pervades everything, including our very soul, our very heart, our very intellect. In fact, if we truly understand Allah's light, then we will understand that without that light, we are just in darkness. But like that mysterious, purified oil that is luminous without fire, 
that part of divinity that that is truly accessible only through mystical journeys. We have a product of the divinity, and that's the the actual flame of of light that we can engage logically and understand logically. But I go back to this idea precisely in the context of this surah of the glass and the mishkad, the enclave, when Allah says, understand that this light, in order for it to truly be light upon light, and Allah reminds us of a structural fact, and Allah reminds us also of another structural fact, and that's the clear or the 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 uh, brilliantly clear glass that surrounds the flame. In the context of this surah, if you want Allah's light to be augmented and to shine through and to conquer the darkness, then you must structure your own life in a way that accommodates that light. In other words, if if you ignore the fact that you need a niche, well, the impact of that will be upon you. If you ignore the fact that there are moral laws and that these moral laws, so for instance, if you say, well, yeah, sure, people have a right to privacy, except if I have eminent, you know, security forces, and I give my security forces the right to knock down any door at any time, you know, which all dictatorial countries, security forces come at midnight, or they come actually after midnight, they come around three in the morning. And their practice is to storm in and to absolute, absolutely violate the private people's privacy. I mean, the very idea of privacy when you deal with security forces doesn't exist. That is a tarnished glass. You, it is. It is impossible to speak of Allah's light shining through that tarnished glass, because it directly is directly inconsistent with Allah. What Allah has advised you about Allah's light. Put differently, if you do not learn to honor one another's dignity, if you do not, in fact, revere and respect one another, 
then that will either retract God's light or even possibly snuff out God's light. God's light always exists, but its impact, its effect can be corrupted or can be limited. So, I mean, it is, the point is not to go through all the different constructions that were given in the Islamic tradition to Ayat al-Nur. Because in this context, my, 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 uh, um, my task is why Ayat al-Nur in the context of these particular laws. And yes, you can take Ayat al-Nur outside the context of these particular laws and do what Shirazi did or do what Razi did and see the ways that it what it has to say about the human spirit, what it has to say about intuition, what it has to say. And Razi, for instance, talks about the, the, how Atanur relates to what is intuitive knowledge and what is um, constructed knowledge and the relationship between intuitive knowledge and constructed knowledge. And it's, it's absolutely brilliant and it is absolutely applicable but when taken in the context of Surah Al-Nur, in, in, in the context of the discourse before and after, in this pyramid structure, I think the meaning becomes very clear. Don't expect God's light to shine if you don't allow it to shine. Don't expect God's light to shine if you don't honor God's laws. Don't expect God's law, light to shine if you don't follow the moral precepts that God is teaching you and has taught you. So, you know, you, you come to a society, for instance, that Say so, you know it says Islam, Islam, Islam. Talk about Islam. Talk about Islam. Okay, great. But you don't follow the most basic precept. You you don't give them of the money of God's money that God has given you. And as a result, you leave street children as street children and your your orphans are your orphanages are grossly underfunded and you have a system of alqaf but the alqaf think it's their priority 
is to fund, to pay the salaries of the shiuch and the cler clerical class, the clergy, rather than even take care of what the Quran told you to take care of. And then you come and say, why Islam is not doing X, Y, and Z? You're missing God's light, but it is not because the problem is with God's light. The problem is with you. The problem is with the way you've constructed God's light, the, the way that you've snuffed out God's light by failing to follow God's moral laws. And this is precisely why the, the nature of light itself is indivisible and unchangeable. Societies that will augment the light, even if they don't have the rhetoric of Islam, will enjoy the impact of the light. Because the nature of light is that it vanquishes darkness. Whether that light is described as Islamic or not Islamic, it is light that vanquishes darkness. And that is precisely also why divine goodness will be enjoyed by a Muslim or non-Muslim or non-Muslim in proportion to the extent to which you follow the moral laws. So, you know, unlawful searches and seizures to the extent that non-Muslim countries honored the principle of unlawful searches and seizures, they allowed a ray of divine light to shine within them. To the extent they abandoned that moral principle, they will snuff out that ray of divine light within them. Divine light is the quality of goodness. It, it cannot be tagged. It cannot be labeled. It doesn't have an ethnic identity. It doesn't have a national identity. It doesn't have a racial identity. It is the nature of goodness in and of itself. That is, again, when, I mean, I, a Muslim who lives from haram money, for instance, goes to Jum'ah, let's say, let's say, goes to Jum'ah every week. But let's say their income, they cheat, they lie, they take God's name in vain, they, they swear all the time falsely, you know, Wallahi al-Azim this and Wallahi al-Azim that. Compare that person to a non-Muslim who goes to church every Sunday but compared to the Muslim follows more of the moral lies. They don't cheat. They don't lie. 
They don't take God's name in vain. The Christian will have more light than the Muslim because divine light is divine light. It follows moral laws. Now, of course, if it happens to be that the Muslim is a Muslim and moral, the light will trump all. It will be beyond anything else. This is one of this. I that is. I wish people would go would rediscover what Shirazi and what Razi both say about Ayatul Nur, because at core of their discourse is educating Muslims about the indivisibility of morality itself. And that divine light, you don't have the ability to come and say, this divine light is belongs to Muslims, or this one belongs to Jews, or this one belongs to Christians. You, you, you can't do that. You, 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 light is indivisible and it shines, it conquers darkness because of its very nature. Okay. Now, once you've reached the pinnacle of this pyramid, and Allah is saying, understand that in order to be anything, you must anchor yourself in the moral laws that unleash the divine light in your life. Allah then points our attention To um, now, it's sort of like now this pyramid is is going to talk after giving us the ideal of of the abstract ideal. We'll start now. The the other arch of the pyramid where it gives us further examples of the moral structure that would uphold that ideal. So Allah starts out by saying, So Um, yeah. Let's skip thirty-six. Oh. Uh, oh. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So first, well, it was. It's. It's intimately connected. So, 
houses of worship which God has allowed to be raised so that God's name be remembered in them. Fi biyutin and Remember here it says biyut and we'll come to that. Biyut is houses, just houses. There are such as extol God's limitless glory at morn and evening. So they that yuzkaru fiha ismu bil wal asad both in the morning and evening rijalun la tulhihim tijaratun wala bay'an dhikrillah wa iqamis salah wa ita'iz zakah yakhafuna yawman tataqallabu fihi al-qulub wal-absar people whom neither worldly commerce nor thriving after gain divert them from the remembrance of god and from constancy in prayer and from charity. People who are filled with fear at the thought of the day on which all hearts and eyes will be convulsed. Um, okay. Um, so we can add um, a day a day on which all hearts and eyes will be convulsed, and who only hope that God may reward them in accordance with the best that they ever did and give them out of God's bounty more than they deserve for God grants sustenance unto whom God wills beyond all reckoning. So the thing to note here is that first Allah mentions biyut, abodes that as in Allah and turfa fiha smuh and turfa wa yuthkaru fiha smuh that abodes that are as dedicated to remember to the remembrance of Allah um, most commentators say that these abodes refer to the houses of God and Masajid why does Allah says beaut without specifying Masajid Allah Alam, but I think that there is a dual purpose here. It's to say, note, that a core part of the moral quality of your life is not just the houses of God, beauty love, uh, that it, it that they are active, that they are not abandoned structures, but the extent to which the spaces in your life, in in 
the, as, as active private agents, the extent to which you create spaces that become as if dedicated to the remembrance of Allah. So, put differently, there is, um, Hakim al-Tirmizi has a statement that I've always liked. Um, he said, Man jalasa fi masjidin fa'innama yujalisu rabbah. Whoever sits in a mosque, it is as if you are sitting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, yes, a mosque is a space where it is as if you are to Allah, that you are in fact sitting with Allah. But Remember that that process of mujalazatillah can be in any other space depending on dhikrillah. If in fact the remembrance of Allah is in other words you are in an active dynamic of engaging Allah night and day, that space, although not a mosque, can in fact become a space of mujalisatillah. Um, Now, this is, as I, again, the image of the pyramids, right? This is now, as we reach the pit of the top of the pyramid and we're sliding down, note when there, it's reported as a khabar, it's reported as a hadith, it's been, it's probably kalam ma'thur and not hadith. Um, when the description of a believer arba'khilal in u'tiya shakar when in ibtuliya sabar in qala sadaq in hakam adal so the sort of ideal believer the nurani believer is they're grateful for what they receive. If tested and denied, they persevere. They don't despair. They're patient. And if they speak, you always know they speak truthfully. And if they act, they always act justly. Now, set aside the easy rhetoric and think of how much 
self-consciousness it requires for one to commit themselves to, if I always speak, I will speak truthfully, and if I always act, I will act justly. Because it's not just, well, I declare my actions to be just, or I declare my speech to be truthful, or I declare myself to be patient when, when tested, or I declare myself to be grateful. But the actual dynamic of making it substantively so, this is connected to another some said it's hadith but it's probably khabar that a believer a believer and, and just ponder this because we'll connect it to kalamuhu nur wa amaluhu nur wa madkhaluhu nur wa makhrajuhu nur wa masiruhu nur their speech, a believer, when they talk, their speech is light. When they act, their act the, the believer's actions are light. means their inside is light and their external is light. And ultimately, the fate that they see that that believer seeks the fate that they that they travel towards is also light now does this remind me of something nur ala nur light upon light because notice if everything you say is light meaning what it either has to be the amount of requirements is are, are truthful, beautiful, gentle, kind, merciful, never arrogant, never belittling, never slanderous, ne- enlightening, you it intelligent informed if you dedicate yourself to I want my speech to be light then you've committed yourself to a journey of fighting and resisting and cleansing away vanity pettiness small-mindedness dishonesty jealousy your deeds are light. So you commit yourself to what? That you only act in kindness and that you act because we, we intuitively know that if we describe someone's deeds as light, you'd say their deeds serve. If your deeds only serve you, a reasonable person would not describe these as deeds of light. But, and 
But all of that is premised on the lack of hypocrisy. So your inside has to be light. And and so, as a lot, it's as if people see you as light. You, you, it, it is. You don't need to go around saying "I am light." I am light. People will see the light. And ultimately, what you come to understand is all that you truly crave is divine light. In other words, that the, the fate that you seek and you crave is to travel to divine light. In other words, you, you've, you've gone beyond material cravings as your ultimate fate. I want to go to heaven and eat you know, fruit and whatever. No, I, it, what I want is to gaze upon my Lord and to enjoy the beauty of light. And that becomes light upon light. Now, this in itself, in order to open up spaces in your life so that God's light will shine through in society. You must make a point to invest in your public spaces through and 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 your private spaces through the the process, the dynamic of dhikrillah that it is not about, and as we will see, that it is not about, um, you know, strategy against the munafiqun. It is not just about uh, strategizing against this danger or strategizing against that danger. What Allah looks to a priori is the amount of beauty that you create in your private and your public spaces, and especially in these places dedicated lidikrillah. So again, I mean, just so you see, uh, you know, when, um, when imagine when you reach, a, you find societies that go around destroying God's mosques. Um, you know, uh, um, apologists for the current regime in Egypt tell you because the, the current regime in Egypt destroyed uh, about a thousand mosques or more. Um, many of them historical mosques, and apologists for the current regime say, "Oh well, you know, every mosque they destroy, they they build one in this place," which is absolutely not true. But for Muslims to get to the point. Of, of finding it so casually not problematic to raise down a mosque. Um, anyway. Okay. Now, where, where are we? Okay.
Now, in there is a critical point to understand before Surah An-Nur then moves on. And that is the point emphasized in 39 and 40. That those here, الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا أَعْمَالُونَ كَسَرَابٍ بَقِيعَةٍ يَحْسَبُهُ الظَّمْآنُ مَا Kufr here is all those who, I, whether the kufr of the kuffar or the kufr of al-munafiqoon, all those who eject God out of, in other words, all those who don't want the nur, or who, for whatever reason, uh, blind themselves to the nur. The critical point is that without anchoring goodness in God, it is not just a matter of Allah is, is, is alerting us that it is not just a matter of adopting principles, but understanding that it is very, that unless you anchor and affirmatively invite divinity into your lives, you will find that when all is said and done, it is as if you are pursuing a mirage. You will think that you are pursuing goodness, that it's like the the, the thirst the thirsty pursuing uh, water, but only to discover that this water is a mirage in the desert. And when all is said and done, when all is said and done, you will find that at the end of the journey, indeed Allah is waiting, which is a, if if you reflect on it, is is rather. A terrifying thing in, in, in other words saying you know go ahead believe whatever you want imagine whatever you want but when all is said and done it is God will be at the end of this journey um, that Allah at the end of the journey holding you to account so you thought you might have thought that this journey in fact is account free and but what you thought is irrelevant now notice يراها ولم يجعل ومن لم يجعل الله له نورا فما له من نور. The ظلمات here is ظلمة البحر ظلمة الأمواج ظلمة السحاب. I don't remember who is it that said. It might have been one of. Um, it says. Um, um, 
الكافر لا يدري ولا يدري أنه لا يدري ويعتقد أنه يدري that كافر believes they know but indeed they don't know and they don't know what they don't know believes they know false belief that's ظلمه one darkness and they don't know and they don't know that and in fact they are ignorant so that's the second ظلمه ولا يدري أنه لا يدري and he doesn't and the kafir doesn't know that they don't know and that's the third ظلمه so sort of three layers of darkness this is you know just what I heard or read I don't even remember uh, about the the ظلمات البحر ظلمات الأمواج ظلمات الصحاب the darkness of the the three layers of darkness of course I don't think it's 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 literally the the number doesn't matter but I think the basic notion is that in the darkness I once gave a whole haka called the deceptions of the fog but darkness is like Darkness is like quicksand. One level of darkness lends you to another level of darkness that lends you to another level of darkness. You start out with compromising the what seems to you know you 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 start out with um compromising something as simple as say or you know say well you know you 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 take lightly for instance the right to privacy from that darkness you will find yourself incurring compounds of darkness that further suck you away from God's light. It is, it's exactly like when Allah reminds us that holding onto the path when in, in um, um, right after Ayat Kursi when Allah says that um, لا إكراه في الدين قد تبين الرشد من الغيف ما يكفر بالطاغوت ويؤمن الله فقد استمسك بالعروة الوسقى that it is like adhering to العروة الوسقى it's like gripping onto the, to the truth and that the Allah takes people out of darkness while طاغوت takes people from light to darkness 
slipping into darkness, one layer of darkness, and then finding yourself basically drowning in layers of darkness is, how do I, it is as easy as allowing the glass that should augment God's light into life to be tarnished and blocked. If you are not affirmatively augmenting God's light in life by honoring God's moral precepts and by understanding that the what Zikr law means that immoral order itself is built upon being fully conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then you indeed slip away in layers of darkness until you no longer can even find yourself. So in other words, it's like someone who, who can't even see their hands are dark as meaning they've lost themselves. It is the heart of confusion that you feel lost, dissatisfied, but you can't even understand or comprehend or construct the ways that you are lost. That's darkness upon darkness. It's like you, you no longer know where to start. Being heedless of the meaning of divinity and God's light is a path to that terrifying state of layers of darkness. And that light itself is a blessing from Allah that if Allah denies you the enlightenment because you didn't seek it, because you've compromised too much, because you've taken shortcuts with it, because you've, you've ignored what it means to be fully conscious. Zikrullah also, it is not just because a lot of Muslims think that when you talk about dhikrullah, it is sitting and saying, for instance, and we'll show, I'll show you this in a second, that sitting and saying tasbih or tahmid or takbir or whatever. The dhikr that Allah speaks of here is like the dhikr of the tayr, the dhikr of the flying bird as it flies by in the case of creation 
their dhikr is coded in their intuition, their instinct. The very fact that Razi, by the way, uh, ha has writes about this beautifully, that the, 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 the very fact that they act according to their instinct, that is their dhikr. They are testifying to their Lord to where their instinct came from by performing what they're supposed to perform in life by doing what they were coded to do they in fact are engaged in tasbihillah and that is why Allah constantly is saying look at how creation testifies to who your Lord is. A human being, imagine a human being that sits in a place doing tasbih night and day, but does not activate or does not embody God's moral laws, is that person, in fact, engaged in dhikrullah, being God's conscious, is that you do what God commands and do it with the full awareness that you are doing it to please God. You are doing it for God, that you're doing it with the supplication and prayer that God bless me, God direct me, God be with me. So that is why if someone sits night and day doing tasbih, but then goes around, turns around and slanders and commits uh, qasf, that's not zikr. That's a violation of God's moral law. If you are sitting night and day doing tasbih or tahmid and takbir and you steal an orphan's money, that's not dhikr. If you are night and day again, you know, doing tasbih and tahmid and, and Every day as you go to Salah in the masjid, you ignore all the homeless children sleeping on the street. Uh, you know, you just pass by them, going to the masjid, coming back from the masjid. That's not dhikr. Because when Allah speaks of, and, and look, just so you know, notice, Right after Allah alerts us to light and then dhikr and then right after that being drowning in darkness Allah speaks about Alam tara anna Allah yusabbihu lahu man fi samawati wal ard The entire heavens and earth is in a state of tasbih 
And as the Razi says, and as Shirazi also makes a very similar argument, that how could it be that the earth and the heavens are in state of tasbih? Because they follow the divine law. The difference is they don't have a choice. You do. You can deviate from the divine law. So you can abstain from the act of tasbih. But when you follow the divine law, you are engaged in tasbih. So, look, وَالطَّيْرُ صَافَّاتُ كُلٌّ قَدْ عَلِمَ صَلَاتَهُ تَسْبِيحَ That bird that is flapping its wings and flying, it knows its salah and it knows its tasbih. Because it is acting per its instinct, per, per its creation. It is testifying by its very life to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Human beings are among those who were given a choice not to testify. In its ex- by, through their existence. Now, maybe I'm radical, and I hope not, but if Allah, when as a human being, you pursue knowledge And in your heart, you say, Allah, I am pursuing knowledge not because I am in love with myself, but I am in love with you. Allah, allow this knowledge to serve you. That's that's exactly like a tayr al-safat. When you are you walk on earth an example of modesty and an example of kindness. When people look at you and you don't excite jealousy, you don't create vehemence, you don't create hate. You, in other words, you are the embodiment of light. That is tasbih. But the trick about the thing about modesty is that you wouldn't even be aware of your modesty. If you walk and your true beauty shines from your soul, that is tasbih. That is upholding divinity. That is why I am so when I when I trash the modern age with the social media because it is so contrary. To tasbih and you know when when people are there fighting for attention and fighting to trash each other, there's not an iota of beauty in this. There is no testament of a nuraniya. A nuraniya is is a, remember where I said that thulthayil. Uh, 
التجاود النورانية is in self in denial and in un being understated not overstated when I'll give one one final example and don't move on or take a doctor a doctor could go around treating people and they treat people and as they treat people they're thinking of okay you know how much money I'm gonna make the prestige I'm a, a you know I like calling myself doctor such and such when I meet people I like making people wait patients wait for me uh, because I'm important and you know I like thinking about all the things I'm gonna be able to or a doctor can feel that they do what they do all along saying Allah I do it because I am I I am upholding what I know is the light coming from you every time I treat a person every time I make a person feel better Allah I am serving your light so give me light endow me with light that's the same acts but one example is not Nurani and the other is Nurani that's becomes tasbih and dhikr in the very act of service okay let's take a three minute break three minutes It was from Razi? Yeah. Which one? The Oh, oh okay. The, the, okay, so it was from Razi. Okay. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanallah, the, um, just um, um, in the, the one of the hadiths that is often reported, uh, this is in the context of um, th- verse 38. <laughs> Allah uh, that Allah has Allah's reward uh, to those who do good and you know um, is a is a hadith where the the Prophet reportedly said Adatu li Abadi Salihin Mala Ainun Ra'at Wala Udnun Samaat Wala Khatra Ala Kalbi Bashar that the, the those who are pious, those who are divine, rabbani, divinely beings, uh, 
that what Allah has stored for them is what an eye has never seen, what an ear has never heard, and what no human being can imagine. And um, this hadith, by the way, is verbatim nearly in the Bible. It's a statement attributed to Jesus. And I just remembered it because um, of um, in the past, there was some guy who, I don't know, was apparently so troubled by the fact that this hadith was in the Bible or that he actually apostated. He left Islam altogether. And it's just, it's... Um, part of the unfortunate ill education that Muslims have because there is no question that, I mean, if you accept that the God of Jesus is the God of Muhammad, then what that God inspired Jesus to say, that same God can inspire also Muhammad to say. So that's, you know, non, that just as a first. But other than that, there are, there are, without a doubt, many converts like Kabil Ahbar and others who converted to Islam and who injected in the Islamic tradition considerable amount of biblical narratives attributed to the Prophet um, And it is the the legacy, part of the legacy of al-muhaddithun, the, the transmitters of hadith, that they didn't consider this a factor in assessing the credibility or the authenticity of a narrative. You know, I think it is relevant. If you find a hadith attributed to the Prophet, and that one the, 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 the transmission of the hadith passes through someone like Kaab al-Ahbar, for instance, which we know ha was a late convert and we know was already well informed about the biblical tradition. And we have a number of people who believed that this person was injecting into the Islamic tradition, biblical traditions, of course it is relevant in, in assessing the authenticity of a, a tradition. But I, I just um, re remember that and, um, because of, of how often this hadith is, is quoted in the context of um, verse 38. Okay. Now, let's see. So, the verses of nature, which include 41, um, up to 
45 that which is again quite common in the Quranic narrative that if Allah alludes to Surat Mustaqim or Allah alludes to the divine light or Allah alludes to um, Allah, um God's guidance that at the same time Allah mentions creation itself as a testament to that light and it bolsters the idea that the very order of creation and the very fact that this creation follows laws encoded in nature is nature's form of tasbih, nature's form of supplicating and praising Allah. This is why among the, the you know, I, I remember years ago, Professor Mudarasim, um, we were talking about why so many scholars in Islamic history de uh, develop a love of, of plants and farming and planting. Another, you know, they, 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 they nurture plants like they're nurturing children. And it is precisely because that the more you reflect upon nature and the more you, you see nature as a living testament, one of the, the, the worst things that human beings have done to themselves is that they started looking at nature as a commodity and as a means for commercial gain rather than as living testaments to divinity and the truth of God. And so because in the same way that Allah teaches us to honor privacy, to honor each other's dignity, core in the, in the, in the Quranic ethical outlook is that you honor creation as a living witness to God. And so from 41 till 45 that it is the but tied to that core idea that in the same way when you understand the what nature does and the fact 
that as Allah reminds us that creation by the very fact that it is created and it is living that that each knows its salah and its tasbih it is like saying how about you human being if you are fully aware that by the air you breathe the very life you live that you are a living testament to Allah's salah and Allah's tasbih then of course but you have the power to corrupt it you have the power to undermine it to derail it It is impossible, in my view, and I think the view of most the scholars that I've read, for a human being to have a true understanding of Allah's light without having a deep appreciation for Allah's creation. You want to tenderize your heart. You want to teach yourself what Allah's light, the truth of Allah's light, what it is. Learn to be, to, to rekindle your connections with Allah's creation. to reflect upon the marvel that you and the dirt that you see lying there on the ground, you're one. You are one. But, but for the fact, but for the fact that God's light that flows within you has allowed you that power of molecular structure that gives you your form and consciousness that gives you your awareness. But this is actually um, Sheikh Ghazali Allah used to say um, he actually wrote even wrote this in some of his books that ponder the soil that you step on and come to understand all the ways that what you share with the soil. The more you see the commonalities, the more your humility will, will increase and your light will increase. The more you understand the way that you and that soil are one all the commonalities 
the, the more your light will flow from you, the more the light will, will, will be unleashed within you. I'll, I'll put it a bit differently. You know, you could look at what some of the most humbling and liberating exercises is to reflect upon a bird. I like to do it with dogs. Reflect upon a dog, for instance. And I reflect upon all the ways that this dog and I are truly, we share so much as witnesses for God, as bearing testimony for God. In many ways, this dog with the, the, the instinct of the dog is a more true in their tasbih and their salah Whereas my struggles with my vanities and weaknesses. And the reverence you develop towards everything that God endowed with the right to exist alongside you is one of the most powerful keys to divinity, to understanding divinity, that the the what whatever privileges that you are given beyond a dog or beyond a chicken, it is solely due to God's gift, but for God's gift you and the chicken would be exactly equal. Okay. And this, this section then is crowned, is sort of concluded with لَقَدْ أَنزَلْنَا آيَاتٍ مُبَيِّنَاتٍ وَاللَّهُ يَهْدِي مَنْ يَشَاءُ إِلَىٰ صِرَاطٍ مُسْتَقِيمٍ That after, uh, like, the final sentence in this paragraph is, Allah comes and says, and again, for the millionth time, I remind you, uh, this, let's see, 46, and that we've sent messages, Mubayinat, messages of clear truth, Messages that clearly reveal to you to truth. Now we come. Allah yahdi ma yasha'u ila siratim mustaqim. Here, there is a interesting, forgotten debate in the Islamic tradition. When we come to a verse like this, where it says. Normally, it's translated, and God guides 
whomever God wishes to the straight path, to the Salat al-Mustaqim. In some of the early um, early reports by the earliest scholars in, of the Quran, it's actually read as the irada here is not that that belongs to God, but belongs to the human being. So, in other words, what it's saying then is, and God guides whomever, not God wishes, but whomever wishes to be guided to Surat al-Mustaqim, to the straight path. Of course, this culminated in the 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 debates between the Mu'tazila and the um, uh, Ash'ariya especially, that the Mu'tazila building on these early reports insisted that what, what verses like this are saying is that whoever God wants, whomever wants to be guided God, in turn, helps guide them to Surat al-Mustaqim, rather than the way that the Ash'ariya understood it as it, it is God that guides whomever God wants to guide. Let's see how Muhammad Asa translated it. This is 46. I'm just curious. Um, so it says, um, indeed, from on high we've given or bestowed messages clearly showing the truth but God guides unto straightway only him that wills to be guided. Oh, so he does understand it in the sort of Mu'tazili way. That's really interesting. That him here in Muhammad Asad's translation is not capitalized. So the hymn refers to the human being, not to God. God guides unto a straight way only him, not capitalized, that wills to be guided. So the human is the one that wills to be guided, which is really interesting because that's the, um, uh, yeah, he even ex explains it. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I have to admit that I I do tend to agree that the eagerness to read all such verses as referring to sort of a, a, as if it is God just wantly decides who's to be guided is uh, is a misreading of of the moral just of the Quran. Okay. All right. So now, in that, again, that very interesting image of, of, of the descending side of the, of the pyramid, because we've gone up and we're now we're going to go back to that having 
addressed sort of the 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 ideal moral laws culminated with the the ideal metaphor of the light upon light and then emphasizing to Muslims that check yourself the extent to which you are indeed about a testimony on behalf of God, witnessing for God, a, in a, a, an embodiment of dhikrillah, and understand that you are a, you are part, Allah's creation, the law of Allah's creation is that it testifies for God. You have that choice whether in fact to uphold the purpose of creation or to um, uh, otherwise corrupt the purpose of creation. Then subhanAllah Surah Al-Nur goes on to address those who are, in fact, in an active state of corrupting the divine light, corrupting the, the very philosophy, the very logic of creation, and addressing the very heart of the social tensions that gave rise to the type of social problems that were addressed in the beginning of Surah Al-Nur. And coming typical Quranic style, sort of getting to the heart of the challenge that the Muslim community is meeting at the time. And at the heart of this challenge is the recalcitrance, recal recal not pronouncing this word, um, the uh, obstructionism, Recalcitrant, recalcitrant. Anyway, anyway, the obstructionism of people within the Medina community and the problem is that you are dealing with human beings and you are dealing with human beings who say we believe this is now, we're at 47. We believe and we follow you and it is not helpful as, as later tafsir have done is to always, you know, to, to, to make it sort of a cartoonish narrative of it's always, you know, the, 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 the hypocrite camp led by a single individual or a couple of individuals who are, 
it, it is human weakness that Allah is warning us about. So some of them say we believe in God and in the Prophet. And we, we in fact are obedient. So Allah is talking about those that in fact have said, yeah, we are sincere, we're committed. ثم يتولى فريق منهم من بعد ذلك وما أولئك بالمؤمنين. However, when it comes to the actual implementation, there are those individuals who find it very difficult to comply and to, in fact, turn the principles into lived action. And Allah you know, comes in and, and, and these are not the real believers. The, the, these people who have this hypocrisy in their heart. وَإِذَا دُعُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ لِيَحْكُمَ بَيْنَهُمْ إِذَا فَرِيقٌ مِّنْهُمْ مُعْرِضُونَ So, what, and this is 48 and 49 is closely like, so there is a group of people who effectively have not been able to rid themselves of opportunistic logic they follow sincerely and obediently as long as they like the results. But if now the results are bruising to their egos, if the results are not to their liking, they start making excuses. Now, here again, we have a number of reports that say, and, and reports that although often transmitted as occasions for revelations, I think it is more helpful to understand them as reports giving context. So for instance, um, there is a fellow... I just remember his his um, first name. I don't remember his last name. His name was Bish something. Anyway, um, that reportedly this fellow Bish had a land, a commercial dispute with um, one of the Jews of Medina. And when the the Jewish merchant told Bish, well, you're Muslim, fine, Let, let's go to Muhammad and have him settle this dispute. And Bish says, no, inna Muhammad yahifu alayna. No, because Muhammad is harsh on us. Muhammad is, is 
sort of implying that Muhammad, you know, tends to be harsh on Muslims. There's another um, report, Al-Mughira bin Wa'il had, um, it's a it's a it's a land dispute with an Imam Ali that um, he bought land from an Imam Ali and then after he bought it he he complained that the land was not properly irrigated and that and so anyway it's a it's a, a long story um, and. So finally, Imam Ali said, okay, let, let's go to the Prophet and have him settle this dispute between us. Because Al-Mughira bin Wa'il was complaining that th- this is not fair, and Imam Ali, of course, was saying, you know, um, it was a, a fair contract and so on. Um, and Al-Mughira bin, uh, 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 bin respond refuses to accept arbitration of the Prophet and says um, لا, لا, لا that no Muhammad doesn't like me and so and I, I'm worried that he would um basically not be fair to me because he doesn't like me. Now, of course, I don't think that these were occasions for revelations, but I think that the reason they are mentioned as occasions for revelations is it's because they allow us to understand a context. And the context, and there are many other reports similar, but the ones that I think are really interesting are the ones that tell us, one of them, by the way, is reported about, again, Al-Mughira bin Wa'il, the same man. Uh, Allah alam if it's... Uh, anyway, that, that when the ruling came down, vindicating Aisha, and saying that those who slander women would be punished 80 lashes, that remember in Surah Al-Nisa there the, the, it came and the restriction that it said you cannot accuse your wives of al-fahisha without bringing four witnesses and if you do this will result in a trial by oath and marriage ends but there was no punishment in Surah An-Nisa. Then in Surah An-Nur, when it came and said that if you slander women and you don't bring four witnesses, you can be struck eighty lashes. A group of people that are usually described as al-munafiqun, but I, I think that they're just human beings who are weak of faith, said, oh, Muhammad only did this 
they were unhappy it was the punishment and they said that muhammad only did this because he of aisha because he wants to protect aisha's reputation it's if you think about it in pietistic history we'd say oh that's such that's really horrible but think about it it's entirely human you might be one of the people who would say that would say oh okay you know such a harsh punishment for what for saying that a you know she acted inappropriately when she did act inappropriately and that now we either bring 80 last 80 we bring four witnesses or we shut up and if and and if we you know what's the big deal you know it, does this really deserve that we be threatened with 80 lashes there was that response in the same way that there were those who are saying no we don't want to go because the prophet was known as meticulously fair and those who knew that they if they go to the prophet for adjudication if they if they you know had a sense that they were in the wrong then they don't want to go to the prophet because they know muslim or no muslim he's going to rule against you but in addition to that were those who were basically again looking at the the number of the 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 revolution taking place in Medina and saying okay so after all the economic sacrifices after all the which we've talked about so now our slaves are not our own and even gossip is a serious affair and the those who are close to the prophet have made it very clear that engaging in gossip is act of darkness that they will not tolerate so that is why then says of course it is when the rules are to their favor they have a very different attitude but when the rules restrict and these are you, you by the way the, the 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 most gossipy were also the most privileged and the most um wealthy and so it's also the 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 rule about mukataba uh, of slaves um f- f- impacted the harshest the most privileged so notice 15. notice the language here It's as if Allah is asking questions of reflection. 
Is it that there is an, an illness in their heart? Amr tabu. Or is it that they are losing their faith or questioning their faith? Or is it that they truly fear that Allah and His Prophet are not treating them fairly? These are not questions that you ask the classic munafiqun who withdrew in the Battle of Uhud. If this were the munafiqun, you're not going to say, oh, is it that they are experiencing weakness of faith? You're going to say, they're weak of faith. The fact that Allah is saying here, is it that they have an illness in their heart? Is it that they are experiencing weakness of faith? Is it that they think Allah and his prophet are going to treat, is treating them unfairly? Is in itself alerting you that these were common Muslims, but weak Muslims. Muslims that are our type. Muslims who easily sin. Muslims who start, you know, who ha- who can ex- easily experience double standards. If they can easily see the injustice of something, if the injustice affects them. But if it affects others, they struggle with it. This is very common, right? It's very common. Because if it didn't exist, we wouldn't have despotism. We wouldn't have injustice. You, you can see the unfairness of a situation if it affects you. But if it affects others, suddenly, you know, things are not clear to you. And when Allah comes and says, what are you complaining about? I mean, you are, you don't think that you your slaves should have the right to earn their freedom through mukataba. You don't think that you should be punished if you slander people because this is, this is Arab society that lived on mufakhara and on some really, like when in their poetry, when they would, um, uh, uh, when they would criticize one another in their poetry, their poetry was often extremely unfair. I mean, it would talk about how not only are you, but it would attack your lineage, it would attack your parents, it would attack your tribe. So this was not no small change in lifestyle. This was saying from now on, there's going to be responsibility in discourse and the, the, your society must uphold the standards of light. And so there was whining and complaining. And Allah is coming and saying, reflect. Are you among the Zalimun? Are you among the unjust? Because if what you feel when you hear the laws of light is, oh, you know, this is unfair, why is it? Why are we? Be, why is God being so harsh with us? Why are we having these? 
then you are indeed among the unjust, i.e. among the darkness. What time is it? Oh, sorry. I, I meant to stop at nine thirty, and it's ten o'clock. It's nine forty-five. Nine nine forty-five. Okay. Uh, a smaller apology. Yeah. I meant to stop at nine thirty. Sorry. Um, it's nine forty-five. Okay. Let's stop here, and inshallah, we'll continue on Tuesday. All right, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Thank you so much. I think it just gets better and better every single day. And um, the time just flies, and it's like, it's just, everything is so profound. Um, first, Joe reminded me to just say, if anyone wants to um, read more on the parable of um, light upon light, they're actually in the in the prophet's pulpit in our latest book. And chapter five is called Parables of Light Upon Light. So. Oh, part where you, about the darkness where you can't see your hand, and actually, the whole, there's a whole section dedicated to darkness to light. So, um, it's, if, if you haven't had a chance to get your book or read it, it's you absolutely have to. It's it's incredible, and um, alhamdulillah, a lot of people have been reporting back that it's it's truly magnificent, it's a masterpiece, and all of that. But it's it's you know, um, it's amazing. I think it's life changing, and it's definitely um, changing the way that people understand like how to practice their faith. So it's so beautiful. Um, just to share a few highlights from today, I didn't, I was trying to uh, scribble and catch up, but there was just so much beauty that it's really hard to even like capture just the highlights. Um, but when you were talking about, for example, the impact of cultural baggage on, upon reading the text, it was so powerful, like comparing um, the verses where it's, there's the same grammatical form. Um, but the treatment is very different. Like the idea of covering women, it becomes mandatory, but in comparison, using the same gr grammatical form in the very next verse, the treatment of orphans and slaves becomes optional, and that that's evidence of, of how people apply that cultural baggage um, in reading the text. Um, it was so beautiful to say, you know, of course, um, you know, building upon the idea of uh, the right to dignity and privacy, pride, honor, modesty, um, fundamentally the right to freedom and the whole discussion on slavery um, is, was extremely valuable um, and deep. Um, the construction of the moral ideal and the idea of morality over pragmatism and that all of these are um, what are necessary for creating a society of light or the Nurani society. Um, and um, even like the, when you shared with us the reports about um, like how women dressed and men could easily confuse, you know, slave women with um, free women or women who um, were, you know, um, not of, of pure, you know, good purity or like people who were not in, not clean versus clean. I mean, this is such an example of just the detail of a scholar really investigating a situation. Like when you think about that, then that means that women actually were dressing very similar to one another despite what who they were, what they did. And when you try to, you know, like bring that idea to our modern time and how people have become so rabid about, you know, whether if you're not wearing a scarf, for example, then that means you're, you know, not faithful or, uh, you know, all the stuff that we do that is just out of, um, extremism of thought, I mean, or, or, or ignorance maybe is a better way of putting it. 
that those are the details that really make this tafsir so special. Um, and then even the example of makeup, that you know, like the, the immediate question was, well, are you saying that makeup is not allowed? But that just also reveals the attitude. It's not about the makeup itself. It's about the intentionality behind it and the and its use. And then you know, just again telling us we have to be thoughtful and and you know, like reasonable and think through, like you know, what is the intentionality, what is the use, and, and just the complexity of any given situation. Um, then the point about how these verses of light, you know, there's just so much, there's a wide application um, and that that makes this uh, paradigm so apt for so many different occasions. Um, and that, you know, your, your, your role is, is to really point to, you know, is this light, you know, what is the purpose of this light and um, what is, the, what is the, the moral issue here? Um, and then the, the idea of how these moral issues are not subject to a cost-benefit analysis um, or pragmatic logic. Um, this is the problem of our age. Everything comes down to money and how much, you know, pragmatism is is favored over morality. Um, and then getting into the idea of um, how do you really make that light of God shine and the idea of tarnished glass. You know, the light doesn't change, but it's how your glass or your ability to, you know, shine that light out is affected by how you um, take these moral laws or live them or fail to follow the moral laws of God. Um, the notion of how light is indivisible and unchangeable and that div divine light follows the moral laws and how that applies to Muslims and non-Muslims, which is so beautiful again, because it's not about this light belongs to Muslims and that light belongs to some other group, but it's actually if someone exhibits more light, regardless of what faith they follow, that's really the ultimate um, evidence and, and point. Um, and then the, the descriptions of an ideal believer, I think was so powerful, you know, having light in your speech, light in your action, light on the inside and outside and seeking light. I mean, just so much um, to reflect on. And then conversely, the idea of darkness being like quicksand and layering upon layer. So that's where my notes ended, and we covered so much more that was so incredible and so deep. But um, again, just thank you so much. I feel like when we're sitting and receiving this, we're so blessed. Um, and just, you know, there's so much to learn, so much to reflect upon. And so I'm uh, so grateful um, for, for this session and all the sessions before um, and how it just brings the point of all of this together um, in such a profound and beautiful way. So thank you everyone for being with us. Um, and inshallah, <laughs> enjoy the rest of your weekend. We will see you um, inshallah Tuesday for a continuation, day five of Surah Noor. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Thank you so much, Sheikh. Take care. Assalamu alaikum.